Welcome back to Tom Talks Movies. Today I'm going to talk about some of the films I've seen over the course of the last month. There's a couple of new releases in there, but most of these are just older films I'm trying to get off my watch list. I think you're going to enjoy me reviewing them for you today. Hopefully this goes on to become an on- ongoing segment on the show, just a what I've seen in this month kind of situation. Anyway, let's jump straight into it. A couple of weeks ago I saw a film called Boy. Boy is a film from Taika Waititi. I've mentioned his name a lot recently due to his recent success. This film, released in 2012, comes a long way before he even became a B-level director. It's known, to, it's unknown to me at least if there's an autobiographical element to his works, but there is a regular theme across a lot of them. They often look at the strength and resilience of kids. We meet Boy, an 11-year-old who lives on a farm in rural New Zealand. He lives with his gran, a goat, his younger brother Rocky, who thinks he has magical powers. And it's 1984, where Michael Jackson is more than an inspiration, he's his idol. The film opens on the gran leaving home, attending a funeral, leaving Boy to fend for himself, having to take on the responsibility um, of looking after everyone. Boy's father, played by Taika Waititi, called Alamein, appears out of the blue. And across the film, having imagined a heroic version of his father during his absence, Boy comes face to face with the reality of the incompetent hoodlum who's returned to find a bag of money he buried years before. The film has a lot of heart, which is mirrored in its colourful production values. There are a lot of memorable animated and fantasy interludes, many of which centre on the location of the dead mum's tombstone, where Rocky spends many hours. Its surface is decorated with bright designs and pictures which seem to celebrate her life and the living in general. It's contrasted against the living in that sense, who Boy and his mates just observe from the shadows as they hang out at their local beach shop. It deals with its subject matter really well and falls on the side of a little raw, a little less polished than some of Taika's future releases. I do think that works in its favour. It's not at all cringy or corny and I would recommend you to see it. Following this, I went out of my way to see La La Land. Despite achieving critical box office success um, in 2016, I only recently got round to seeing it, and I wish I'd seen it sooner, if only for the extra years, months, days of bouncing around the house, humming City of Stars to myself. One of the many remarkable things about Damien Chazelle's La La Land is how much energy and time it devotes to movement and music, not just the lyrics. Modern film musicals have often focused heavily on songs that just push the plot along, I think about Greatest Showman. In Chazelle's vision, the choreography matters, and a simple piano refrain can have more power than a lyric. Throughout the film, the cinematography utilises long, unbroken takes. You, can, you can't only see the dance moves, but you can see the character's entire body when he or she performs them. And after the chorus-like introduction to the City of Dreamers, Los Angeles, we meet the two leads. Pianist Sebastian, played by the charismatic and smooth Ryan Gosling, and actress Mia, played by Emma Stone. Like any good musical, the two have a few false starts and playfully mock each other's flaws, but we know where this is heading, and the two have the chemistry to make us want them to get together. The first major set piece is a long walk between the two, as the sun is setting over the Hollywood Hills. They start to see similarities in one another. Mia's tired of going on uninspiring auditions, Sebastian holds an ideal version of jazz wanting to open his own club instead of playing greatest hits for tourists. Sebastian and Mia have a clear and instant attraction, so even as they dance about how they're not a couple and they're not really interested, their bodies tell another story with a well choreographed dance number. Emma and Ryan aren't natural singers or dancers, but they bring so much character and commitment to every movement that it doesn't really matter. They're fluid, engaging and mesmerising, and we watch them fall in love through dance. 
I think it's easy to let the world get you down sometimes. It's easy to think that dreams don't come true and that love only exists in the movies. La La Land serves to remind us that movies can still be magical and they can still provide us with the channel for us to see magic in the real world around us. It's not so much another day in the sun as the characters sing in that opening number, but the dreams of the night before, the ones we wake up with and try to fulfill. Uncut Gems is the only super recent release I'm going to be talking about, but sort of definitely 2020, last couple of weeks on Netflix, and I saw it about two weeks ago and it's only just now settled in my brain. Taking place over the course of a couple of days, Uncut Gems, directed by the Safdie brothers, Josh and Benny, follows a character called Howard, the adrenaline junkie, diamond dealer, gambling addict, played by Adam Sandler, as he attempts to pay back his huge gambling debts by, of course, placing increasingly riskier bets. It makes sense then that Uncut Gems would start with a sequence where the camera moves inside the black opal gem central to the plot, dug out of northern Ethiopia, which then morphs into the inside of a human colon. That is Howard's colon, as we open on him having a colonoscopy. The images of the hospital monitor look similar to the fantastical space inside the opal's innards, its curves and layers, albeit a bit grimier on the hospital monitor. The reason I think they've done this is to sort of put forward the metaphor that the opal is inside Howard. His need for it comes from the basest part of him. The hypnotic power of gems, I think, has been... There's stories of it luring men into madness since the beginning of time. Howard's always on the go, always running out of rooms, racing down sidewalks, charging across lobbies. I think it's representative of one of the things about addiction, the thing that Uncut Gems really understands. On some level, the stress is the point of it. The nerve endings, or his nerve endings, are so frayed that they need the stress. Howard is useless, redundant, without panic. And it's not just a cautionary tale about the dangers of gambling, but it feels like a virtual reality game where you step into Howard's experience. That's definitely a compliment, not a, not a something to put the film down. The film's success is largely down to the work of Adam Sandler, and yet you hear people expressing surprise when he gives a great performance. When he's given good material, like Noah Baumbach's Mariah stories, which I'm going to talk about a little bit later, he's as good as anyone. Behind his humour is pain and rage, both of which he's able to tap into. Howard, complete with the goatee, the fancy glasses, the club clothes, is a portrait of a man living on the edge. He never stops talking, he never stops thrive, striving, scheming, shouting, hustling. It makes for a very intense, anxiety-inducing watch. But if that's your cup of tea, it's, it's on Netflix, you can watch it any time. Um, so Booksmart is a modern retelling of the high school coming-of-age story we've seen permeate the cinema screens for decades. The combination of script and enthusiastic performances generated some real laughs, though not as many memorable comedic scenes as this film's obvious older brother predecessor, Superbad. The story follows two best friends, um, Molly and Amy. Molly's played by Beanie Feldstein, um, an uncompromising bookworm obsessed with being top of her class and her best friend Amy. Amy's played by Caitlin Deaver. He's a quieter character, but a no less driven feminist activist. Together they worked hard to get into the colleges of their dreams, and when, but when Molly finds out that their less studious classmates have also got into the same prestigious schools, while sort of enjoying their social lives a little bit more, um, it shatters her worldview, her understanding of the world. Instead of having their classic night in, Molly convinces Amy to dress up and they're going out for an, uh, they're going to party at least one time before they walk out of graduation. The visual style is noticeably like music video like here, territory that the director Olivia Wilde has found success in before. 
aspects of this really worked for me, like the relevant and powerful uses of lighting. There were some really vibrant yellows in some of the party scenes. However, I found the soundtrack to have its highs and lows. There was a great song um, slipped in there called Slip Away, and it plays as Amy jumps into the pool. Unfortunately, um, she becomes aware of a situation out of her control. Without the song, we'd really be able to understand, we'd kind of be able to understand what's going on, but the choice of song in tone and lyrics really adds to the scene. The girl's favourite teacher warns them, don't make the same mistake I did, and that statement feels like a warning for the audience too. Focusing so much on work and success has pushed generations to burn out. Put aside the pressure to succeed or live up to strict ideals and focus on what's important, our friends. At least I think that's what the film's trying to say. In the same genre, Lady Bird preceded Book Smart by two years, and it seemed to be the breakout project for Greta Gerwig as director and Saoirse Ronan as the leading lady. To my eyes, it's one of the better solo directing debuts by an actor in recent memory. Hardly a full step is taken by Gerwig in her semi-autobiographical script that centres on Lady Bird's final year at her rather progressive Catholic high school. Lady Bird is the name our central character wants to be known by. She plans to escape from her family and her small town in California by going to college in New York, where the culture is, she says. Much to the disapproval of her wildly loving, deeply opinionated and strong-willed mum. I think this film really captures what it's like to be in your late teens, or at least when you're going through that phase in your life whenever it may take place. You might think that you're an adult, you aren't really. You might think that you know better than everyone else, sometimes you don't. And you're, you're, you're made to feel every decision you make will impact your life forever. I'm sat here still hoping that it won't. Lady Bird is occasionally too episodic and obvious, but with such displays of tenderness, it painstakingly reminds you how important forgiveness is and how it's a deep-rooted expression of love. Now, 50-50 concerns a character called Adam. Adam is a 27-year-old man who's learned that he's diagnosed with a rare form of spinal cancer and that his chances of survival are just 50%. The plot covers his subsequent struggle to beat the disease, but in the process, he's finally able to see who and what are the most important things in his life. The story of 50-50 is actually based on the film's writer, who penned the screenplay covering his own struggle with cancer and ends up making a sort of satire out of it. Um... It really, it does that without really hurting the sentiments of anyone undergoing the same diagnosis in their lives. The film deals with its sensitive subject matter in a real, mature manner, without hiding the pitiful sympathies these diagnosed patients receive from anyone at home or work, most of whom make out they care more than they probably do. Adam is played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt and his performances are really captivating. He carries off the character pretty well and nicely captures the experience of the unexpected shock after finding out about the disease, the nervousness of finding of uh, the nervousness and fear of living with it, and then the change an event like this brings in life and the everyday struggle and frustration that comes along with knowing that your days are numbered. Besides him, I'd say the second biggest contribution comes from Seth Rogen. He's playing Kyle, Adam's best friend, who tries to sort of prevent Adam from breaking down, is always there to cheer him up, and treats him as if nothing overly dramatic has happened. Um, there's a real sincerity in uh, Seth Rogen's performance. It's, um, I don't know if it's a surprise coming from him, but it's wonderful regardless. 50-50 isn't completely true to life, but I imagine the more you know about cancer, the less you'd want it to be. 
Back in 2014, Birdman was released, and I liked this film from the first watch, and it felt like a deserved victory for Best Picture at the Oscars. It follows a fading actor, Rigan Thompson, played by Michael Keaton, whose career highlight was his portrayal of a popular superhero as he attempts to mount a comeback by appearing in a Broadway play that he wrote, writes and directs. As opening night approaches, he attempts to become more altruistic, rebuild his career, and reconnect with family and friends. I was inspired to watch it again recently, having remembered that its execution of the one-shot illusion technology was far more seamless and relevant to the content than in 1917. I think I appreciate it even more now having seen that. Birdman is a complete blast from start to finish. The camera moves through the impossibly long, intricately choreographed tracking shots. It swoops through narrow corridors, up and down tight stairways and into crowded streets. It comes in close for quiet conversations and soars between skyscrapers for magical realism and flights of fancy. The city of New York, as is often the case, behaves as its own character. It's magical. And what really sets this film apart, I think, is the truly unique score. Um, I might be wrong, but it sounds as if it's been exclusively constructed from percussive instruments throughout. Succumbing to the thrill of the whole experience is the point of the film. Um, besides the actual character work where Rigan Thompson is kind of plagued by uh, whether he's a serious actor or a bit of a fraud. Um, and they use the Birdman character as a narrator type to um, get his Rigan's thoughts out in the air. And what you do have to understand here is that very few people, if anyone, could play this role in the same way as Michael Keaton did. Not only is he a quality actor and he's fantastic in this, but there is a meta quality that he played Batman all those years ago in his own series of films. His supporting cast do just that, they support the story. But the quality of the actors elevates each of their roles to being truly memorable. Edward Norton, Emma Stone both deserve particular shout-outs for the chemistry between them as well as the chemistry they have with Keaton. It's wonderful. <sighs> Lastly, I'm going to talk about the Mariah stories, and I saw this one most recently, so it's quite vivid in my mind. Um, the 2017 release from Noah Baumbach, who recently wrote and directed Marriage Story, I've spoken about that a few times, this film stars Adam Sandler and Ben Siller, it's, so it's the film I mentioned earlier in reference to Adam Sandler's great performances. You know what's coming then. Um, both those characters, they're siblings, and they're part of this Mariowitz family, um, an artistic bunch. They play the two brothers. The plot follows the family gathering together in New York for an event celebrating the artistic work of their dad, and it unravels in different ways when f difficult family dynamics come into play. I never want to harp on exclusively about the technical aspects because this film's characters and emotional value should be at the forefront, but I couldn't help but notice the range of shots that Baumbach uses and the patterns that he reveals in them. Each scene, or a number of scenes in the film, would start with a brief establishing shot, which I loved, um, and then it would follow with three or so close-ups of the characters, each consecutive slot get shot getting slightly closer in. Without it being obvious to too many in the audience, this is one of the ways that he makes you feel encompassed, surrounded by the scenes. And in those scenes, I think one of the better examples was when Adam Sandler was talking to his daughter. They're quite a friendly pair, but she's going away to college and is becoming uh, a little bit more distant in a sort of difficult period of his life. Um, and those scenes feel super contained and really um, heartwarming. Another highlight of the film is the manner of the editing. Even if you don't find the human story totally compelling or engaging, relatable even, 
the way in which the characters speak over each other to such extremes is the perfect way of to demonstrate how each family member fails to listen to one another. I read this comment online and it words my feelings in a way I think I'd struggle to convey. Noah Baumbach's work is like a piano music. It takes two points, whether those points be birth and death, love and hate, New York and Los Angeles, and examines the in-between. It's compromised of small moments, small notes, each providing a singular mood that when put together combines into the larger, more uncoordinated piece. But there's precision to that. These notes aren't thrown together at random. One note always goes hand in hand with the next in a melodic way. It's a series of different notes played from the same instrument, each making obvious, though, their sound that they come from the same instrument. It's why when the Mariah stories ends with a piece made from strings, you really feel the difference. And I mean, I, I, I heard it on first listen. That was my annotation, not the comments. Um... These singular sounds blend into something grander, something warmer, a newly found sense of togetherness. Really loved all these films on this list. Somehow made it through February um, with just just absolute class, really. I don't think there was a bad film on this list. I'd recommend each one of them. Um, some of the Booksmart and Undercut, Uncut Gems are both 15 rated. Um, do with that what you will. Anyway, thank you for listening. Um, I'll catch you next week and I hope you've enjoyed listening. Bye.